to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? It's going. I am mm. <laughs> all right, thank you. I am mainly just in awe of uh, the shortening days and lengthening nights, uh, such mm. is one of the features of living on our planet, uh, and just bracing myself for when pretty much all of the world leaders are going to be down the road from me. Um, oh, yeah. That's very soon, <laughs> isn't it? It's very soon. The big the big planet Hootenanny, um, as we're calling it. No one's calling it that. Um, yes, will be happening down the road from me uh, for a fair chunk of November, and I believe the prep is sort of happening now. And I am mm. bracing myself, and I'm not really sure why they're not doing it on Zoom, but that's just me. Uh, so I might be under a bit of a self-imposed lockdown. <laughs> but other than uh, climate crisis, I'm all right, thanks, Ed. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, no world lead. Well, one former world leader <laughs> near, near me in the kind of uh, global sense. Uh, but he's like a good couple of hundred miles away. So I did. it's never really a concern, uh, fortunately. Never really impacts my, my commute or if I had a commute anymore. Yeah, that I I think I made this observation last year around this time as well. But like, it's kind of a little harder to notice like the the hours getting shorter when you work from home. Yeah. Because <laughs> when I was in um, our office, which is slowly being emptied out so that we could move to a different one uh, at, at some unspecified date in the future, um, we had like you know big big windows like floor to ceiling windows on every. Um, on every uh, floor and so as the year progressed you became really aware when you get to the autumn winter months when it gets like dark around six because the entire office just like very very gradually darkens up until the point that like all of the automatic lighting comes on and there's really not that much of that stuff in my flat where I don't have like massive windows constantly <laughs> kind of like having it go on to me um, and so yeah the changing of the amount of light per day is like less noticeable mm-hmm. so like maybe uh that has kind of like lessened the the sad uh that i'm that I, I occasionally suffer from uh at this time of year but also uh certainly increases just the sense of constant isolation <laughs> that comes from working your in, in your own flat uh for eight hours a day and then you know the end of the workday being okay turn off the game I work on and play the games I play for fun. <laughs> <laughs> ah, potato, potato, bad screen, mm. good screen. It's all yeah. the same screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I'm good. Um, apart from that, yeah, let's just go straight into the news, shall we? It's been quite a few weeks of news. Mm. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded. And uh, a lot has happened. Uh, we'll f- kick off with... Uh, a follow-up on a story that we've been kind of like following over the last month or so, which is the uh, story of the IATSE, which is the the kind of big union that represents a lot of the quote-unquote below-the-line workers in Hollywood. Previously, uh, I've spelled it out, but I've seen a couple of videos where people refer to them as the IATSE, and uh, I like that it sounds like something you would hear at a Greek wedding. So, yeah, exactly. Um, way to show solidarity with the catering staff. Just shout IATSE when they smash the glass. Um, but uh, yes, uh, they have, uh, you know, to, to kind of like provide a little backstory, IATSE have been negotiating this new contract with the Producers uh, Association in um, Hollywood, which has kind of, was meant to have been done over the summer. They haven't reached an agreement because of various demands from uh, the IATSE about um, basic things like lunch breaks and making sure people get uh, rest between days and they're not working seven like huge like 17 hour days which are fairly common and then sort of more you know bigger things like discussions about uh recompense for people who work on streaming shows because the last time that this contract was negotiated streaming 
networks were not quite the behemoths they are now. So like streaming shows basically said, uh, networks basically said, you know, we can't pay you as much because our shows are kind of like a smaller deal. And now those shows are like massively successful and those streaming services, you know, are kind of like huge industry uh, players. So now uh, the people who work on them want some fairer pay as a result. And the two sides have kind of been a bit of loggerheads trying to reach an agreement and a strike was authorised last week. The uh, union voted overwhelmingly with like 99% to authorise a strike if it was needed and one was planned for at the time that we're recording tomorrow, the 18th of October. And last night there was a, it was announced that a tentative agreement has been struck between the producers and the IATSE, basically giving them pretty much everything that they wanted in terms of better hours, better pay, benefits, and things like that. Um, there's no finalised details yet, and the deal itself has to be, you know, kind of like written up and ratified and then voted on by the uh, the IATSE members. So there's still potential of a strike if the terms are not as favourable as these initial reports suggest. But currently, the strike that was meant to start tomorrow is not going to happen, and at least initially, the response seems to be that this is uh, it's a win for the members of the union and potentially something that could have like fairly wide-ranging impacts on Hollywood uh, filmmaking and, you know, American filmmaking more broadly than, you know, using Hollywood as a synecdoche to refer to, like, all the people who also work in New York and Atlanta and everywhere else that stuff gets made. I feel very... Uh, I've got nerves, I've got anticipation... I think it will be the hope that kills me, Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be amazing to see what the deal is. I know that that's not what we'll be privy to, I don't think, because I think it's very much uh, negotiations between Union and the Producers Guild. It's the weird thing where you sort of get into negotiations and then it's like, well it's business as usual until you strike really mm. um and i'm worried that there's going to be i'm worried that there's going to be back and forth and people will still be at risk <laughs> because right you know a, a, the thing that is so heartbreaking is that even though you know i think i've made it quite clear where i where i stand on these things a strike is legitimate for uh, many 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 reasons but the thing that's so heartbreaking is that this is people essentially fighting for their lives um, mm. because the hours and, you know, the, the immediate physical danger of the hours and the nature of what people are doing, but also just the complete indignity and the complete lack of respect. And the stories keep coming on IATSE stories and Brit Crew stories. On Instagram, which I heartily recommend uh, following, and I've heard them as well, and it's just been this completely deadening. That's just how it is, and I don't mm. think I can emphasize how the the sort of like how incredible this could be. <laughs> um, yeah, because I worry that it's such a this is in in terms of uh union and negotiations is that very often as much as a strike is an event it's often a battle as part of a war right mm. and particularly in unions i've been in before and um the sort of playbook is that sometimes there will be a kind of good faith decision which will then be revised later but then there's absolutely no reason for that still benefits uh, the employers and the bosses, really, because you can still get through however long that agreement is with nothing really changing and then mm-hmm. just reneging on it. Um, and solidarity and strength are such, like, are basically the, the cards that you hold <laughs> as a worker in a union. And the fact that People are often in such dire financial straits that they are, it's it's very hard, I think, particularly now, like 
don't cross the picket line, don't be a scab. But at the same time, a lot of people actually do not have the luxury of that, which is also very depressing. Mm. It, it would just be... I keep it going quiet because I'm genuinely in awe of what this could achieve. Yeah. And it's not to say that... It, it's the fact that it will set a precedent and a, and move towards like a legal framework where people have a stronger chance of restitution if these things continue because unfortunately it's very hard not like to stamp out any sort of terrible work practices but at least you have restitution and but also to just complete like to fundamentally change the nature of what this work is I mean, I'm ju- I I am speechless. So I hope that the deal isn't one. I I, I hope the the <laughs> the deal that is presented does not insult members of IATSE. Very often, a first, mm-hmm. a, you know, often that will just get passed back. Um, I'm fascinated to know what the detail is of it because it's not as um, straightforward as a pay rise. It's a it's basically to do with welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm um, I'm a bit nervous, Ed. But um, <laughs> yeah, I um, I I hope they don't back down. But I also don't feel that they are going to because I have not seen a mass movement like this for a long time, and I am apprehensive, nervous, and excited. And I just wish them all the absolute best. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's also really exciting in general because this is not an isolated event there are currently uh, a huge number of strikes and potential strikes going on across the u.s Mm -hmm. um i don't know if the news is really kind of like broke over there but you know like there's a strike at a john deere like factory um in terms of what i'm aware of uh people in the uk was it vaguely aware of kellogg's i think striking Yes, yes, there's a, a strike at the um, at Kellogg's factory um, that's been going on for like two weeks, I think, at this point. And there's, you know, uh, nurses that work for Kaiser uh, have been on strike for a while. There's a strike in Alabama, um, Alabama coal workers, I think, who have been, or iron workers who have been on strike for about eight months, I think, at this point. Um, there has been, in addition to, you know, like the teacher strikes that kind of like swept through a bunch of states a couple of years ago, there has just been a wave of industrial action across the US in all these different areas, which has been really exciting to see. Obviously, you know, the strikes are still ongoing in most of those cases, so there haven't quite been results yet. But um, there's a kind of a level of activism and collective action going on that I don't think has really been the case in my lifetime. No. Certainly not in America where sort of post the 60s, 70s and particularly the 80s like there was a real uh, hollowing out of union power mm. in this country and um, yeah, it's just like really exhilarating to see uh, I think a large part of it you know, it's probably a combination between the kind of like increased class consciousness that you saw over the course of the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, which I think has done a lot to kind of raise awareness of, of the potential of unions and collective action, but also just like the effect of the pandemic has had this real um, cataclysmic effect on the way in which people view work and what their time and what their labour is worth. And I think you're starting to see people take that action into their own hands by striking or quitting their jobs or refusing to come back until pay gets better. And obviously that's a long and difficult struggle and something that's probably going to take years and years to kind of eventually play out. But uh, the last sort of like six, seven months, and, and, you know, like this even like kicked off at the start of this year with the union drive at that Amazon plant in Alabama where the union lost the vote, but it's in, that vote has since been um, invalidated, so they're going to kind of do another drive. Um, it's just been there's just so many things going on at the moment uh, over here in terms of uh, unions and collective action. It's just yeah, it's just really thrilling. I think. Oh, absolutely, and I think there's been 
I know I mentioned it when you asked me how I am, but around COP26, there are an awful lot of strikes happening in Scotland in particular as well, um, to do with rail, cleaners, teachers. I apologise if I miss you out. It is not uh, an omission on purpose. I'm just thrilled that you all are. Um, And it's hard to say that the pandemic hasn't just completely changed people's attitude to work, because I think people have realised that um, they don't owe their job anything if they aren't looked after properly, <laughs> and the lack of uh, mm. the lack of um, any kind of support has been not even just highlighted, but become blaringly obvious. And I and I I, I think it's good. I'll meet you at the barricades. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll go on to our next story, which is altogether less positive, uh, which is the roiling controversy around Netflix and airing uh, the Dave Chappelle special The Closer, which uh, like some of his other recent specials uh, contains a lot of transphobic material that has been uh, criticised quite heavily by uh, you know trans people who say that him his jokes kind of like promote dehumanising attitudes towards trans people, which in turn has a real world effect because it makes it easier for people to hate trans people particularly uh black trans people and that contributes kind of uh in a indirect but very meaningful way to the violence that is meted out against the trans community and uh one of the people who criticized it was uh, a trans woman called uh tara field who worked for uh, works still i believe for netflix uh she posted a long thread sort of pointing out that the ways in which these ideas could be harmful and then illustrating that by just providing a list of every black or latino trans person who has been killed in the u.s this year alone which is a horrifyingly long list um and for that uh terrifield was suspended from by netflix uh then uh, a black trans employee who has not been named um organized a protest which you know was going to be a walkout on the 20th but then that employee was fired seemingly uh, according to some reports because they were uh, suspected of leaking internal netflix information and metrics about the Chappelle special like how it was performing and things like that essentially arguing that for all the controversy it's generating not that many people actually have watched it and they may not be like worth the value to them um and then they were fired by netflix so basically at every step of the way netflix have made nothing but horrible choices uh in this controversy and uh, i think it just everything they've done in this not merely like obviously like you know they can release the Chappelle special if they want to with the material that's in it that's on them if they choose to uh does you know if they want to be perceived i would say rightly as hypocrites for then having like you know an lgbtq <laughs> Uh, IA account and like praising themselves for the work they do to kind of like hire trans people and trans create to, to work for them and to create shows for them then that's on them but then everything else they've done subsequently I think has just been utterly kind of like um despicable oh yeah that's um that's entirely it isn't it I think lots of people have taken to twitter and explained this very well i'm overwhelmed by how hateful all of it is it's the worst possible way that you could handle something on the shallow end from a pr point of view and from Mm. the sense of humanity how you treat your employees it's hypocrisy and it's bullshit because i remember distinctly netflix pulling the saudi arabia episode of patriot act by hassan minhaj um so apparently the same sandbox of stand-up within which Dave Chappelle is allowed to play in, Hassan Minhaj isn't. Mm. Um, it's... Oh, and and that most Netflix's sort of LGBT QIA plus uh, sort of account is just... Oh, I don't even know where to start with that. Um, <laughs> I think what's important to remember and to hold on to is that there is no way that Dave Chappelle's special isn't transphobic. 
Mm. It's a bizarre rant that doesn't have many jokes in at all for a start, um, which is just a pet peeve of mine for any stand-up special. And anything that is there, it's it's an expense. It's at the expense of his friend who died, which is horrendous, and saying and and a plea for empathy for himself and his other rich friends in the face of something that he is simultaneously attracted to and repulsed by. It it's it's just undeniable. And if he'd done any sort of reading beyond hearing about J.K. Rowling and proclaiming himself as a member of Team Turf. If he'd read anything by Judith Butler and the how it, and the links between turfism and fascism, I, I, oh God, I'm so furious. And I know that I, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense because Netflix are essentially trying to behave as if they're a library not a mm. publishing house. Mm. They are not a fucking library. They commission stuff. And they have many commissioners, and it's not the same as a newspaper, <laughs> who have many different editors and different sort of genres and stuff. They are, sh- they, ha- they are a monolith in culture, and they can't pretend that they're not. It's similar to Facebook. Mm. It seems that we are heading towards this technological crunch of... This tech has gone wildly out of hand and taken like a huge market position. Um, and it's nigh on, it, it, it's time to fucking prune it back, right? Because mm-hmm. Netflix has only been around, what, 10, 11 years in the form that it is now, you know? Yeah. And Netflix only does ostensibly one thing it is a one stop shop for production and distribution. And it has become a huge player in a really, really short space of time in both of those areas, right? Um, And kind of trying to say like, oh no, we're, you know, similar to social media being like, oh no, we're just communications. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. This isn't, you're not the phone company, come on. (laughs) And, And Netflix only really does that. Whereas Amazon is awful in so many different ways and in many different arenas as a market leader. Um, and it's just, I, 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 it, it just renders me speechless. Um, I saw, uh, some tell of a Netflix boycott globally on the 20th of October to support, um, mm-hmm. Netflix employees, which I heartily recommend you do, um, because it's just the fact that Netflix can have something as wonderful as the third series of sex education and then also not only commission this but really really push it you know and the Mm. whole of Chappelle and the amount of money that he has been paid and he's still moaning (laughs) you know um I saw someone on Twitter say just I think it's Joel Kim Booster actually who's incredible and well worth following basically said as soon as you get rich you need to stop doing (laughs) stand-up Um, mm. and it is like a sort of thing in comedy where it's like you're no longer relatable if you're oh and yeah Ellen DeGeneres is on Netflix as well with her relatable question mark or unrelatable or whatever I don't know it's it's a real mess and I would love for Netflix to stop using trans people as um, human shields because I think that's what they're doing um, and treating them as just as uh, disposably um so i know i've banged on about having cancelled my netflix um but i encourage anyone to do the same because i think that's honestly the only way they're gonna realize anything about their behavior um definitely boycott at the very least on the 20th of october if that's still going ahead um look after your trans friends and donate to mermaids that's my take yeah absolutely and our final piece of news uh, is not really news. It's the news that <laughs> Michael Caine is not retiring. <laughs> um, which I I actually missed the first half of this news cycle where there was um, an announcement, like uh, Michael Caine gave a interview where he was talking about his new movie um, and someone asked him, 
he was kind of like talking about you know how he doesn't work as much now mainly because of the pandemic and also you know he's getting on in years and you know he's 88 years old i believe and um they asked him the fairly straightforward question if like this would be his last movie and he basically said like oh yeah yeah, it may be or or whatever (laughs) and then suddenly there were all of these stories saying michael Caine announces he's retiring and then later on michael Caine's people basically released a quote from him saying you know i you know, I, I've always gotten up at 6 a.m. every day to go out and, and be an actor, and I'm not getting rid of my alarm clock, essentially, saying that, you know, he is going to continue acting as long as he can, and uh, which at this point, Melage seems to be being small roles in Christopher Nolan movies, but um, he's going to, you know, he, he is not retiring. So like I say, I missed that entire um, arc. So the first thing I saw was people saying, Michael Caine says he's not retiring. And I kind of thought, that's a weird thing to announce. <laughs> <laughs> Imagining him say that, just like completely unprompted in an interview, just kind of like, or, or like just tweeting out, saying like, I'm not retiring, by the way. <laughs> okay. Didn't say you were, mate. My uh, I'm not retiring t-shirt seems to have <laughs> raised more questions than, than uh, answers. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you'd think there's enough going on uh, for us to concentrate on rather than this sort of weird fake news. Because the actual story is that there was no story and it was a mistake mm-hmm. and yeah. whatnot. Um, but the thing about finding out about these things through things like social media and not knowing what my algorithm is doing, when you and I mm-hmm. were discussing mm-hmm. to talk about news for this week, I was like, oh, well, obviously, because Michael Caine's retiring. And you were like, no, he isn't. And I was like, have you not seen? <laughs> and you were like, no, have you not seen? And I was like, oh, my God, there's a retraction. Like, oh, God, it's impossible to... Uh, to keep up but you know i look forward to many more uh michael Caine roles in christopher nolan's film where he plays himself mm. I, I i just remembered what it is that the idea of him just saying i'm not retiring by the way uh out loud reminds me of which is um in the league of gentlemen when tub says we didn't murder him <laughs> just that's just why i'm imagining the tone <laughs> of him saying <laughs> i'm not retiring <laughs> But did he make a little brown fish? That's the question. Mm, Exactly. That's always the question. (laughs) So we'll go on to the main topic for this week, uh, which is bloated slash sprawling art and and the pleasures therein. Um, This was inspired by the fact that I, as I've mentioned kind of offhand uh, previously on this, uh, I have spent most of this year playing through the Yakuza series of um, video games which are a series of games that started in 2005 and which have had uh, seven installments in the mainline series, which are all about this character, uh, Kazuma Kiryu, who is a kind of like Yakuza, starts off as like a low-level Yakuza um, enforcer, goes to prison for 10 years for a crime he doesn't commit, gets out of prison, becomes the leader of the Yakuza, quits the Yakuza in order to found an orphanage where he can raise his adopted child, um, it's it's a kind of a, a, a big series that goes in a lot of directions, and uh, I have really enjoyed playing through um, pretty much all of them. I've got one more game to play through, and I'll, I'll have completed my quest. Although it's, after that, then there's also this whole new series they've done called Judgment, which is about a detective that takes place in the same universe, and then also a series called Yakuza Like a Dragon, which is a turn-based RPG, <laughs> also set in the same world, uh, which I'm also looking forward to playing, because from what I've heard, that one is particularly mental. But I've really been enjoying those, but those games are, by any stretch of the imagination, incredibly bloated. Um, mm-hmm. Their stories are relatively straightforward. You know, you play as Kiryu or at some point other characters and you kind of like go through and you're there's usually like a mystery that he's trying to uncover someone who's trying to in some way take over the uh, fictional entertainment district of Kamurocho uh, in Tokyo but around all of the main story they give you a ton of extra stuff to do there's all these side stories which will be something as simple as someone has lost their cat see if you can find the cat (laughs) or more involved like uh, you help a man on the street when he's attacked by some thugs. He offers to help you, so he takes you to a club where men are dressed as babies, and then you decline that, and then you have to fight all the men dressed as babies. Um, it goes in some strange directions, but that stuff is always like the joy of those games is just seeing just how weird are they going to get with this one. 
Um, and then also they, they, they have like, you can play darts, you can play pool, there's bowling, there's karaoke. There's all these extra things you can do around the side to earn XP or money or, you know, all this other sort of stuff. And all those games, I would say, they probably have a story that can go sort of 20 to 30 hours, but then you end up spending another 20 or 30 just kind of like doing all the side stuff because it's all so much fun. And um, I think, like, objectively, I look at that game and say, these games are all too big they have too much stuff they have too many kind of like extraneous things that you kind of have to do if you want to make your character strong enough to do to like to win all the actual fights you have to do to beat the game um but i can't i i can't imagine making someone making those games and trimming all that stuff out like the the bloat and the sprawling nature of it is what gives those games so much of their identity, the idea that you are kind of getting lost in these worlds that have been created. So playing through those games, particularly the fifth game, where you play as like five different characters and they all have their own like massive stories that take ages, um, that was kind of what got me thinking about, you know, the pleasures of, of art that is kind of made by people who, you know, have had enough success that the the, 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 the guardrails are kind of taken off and they can do whatever they want. Or even, you know, people who just really go for it. Um, and yeah, so that, that's kind of like my starting point is, is the Yakuza series. Uh, Emily, what kind of examples do you have of, of really kind of like sprawling slash bloated art that you, that you really liked? Yeah, so kind of sticking with sprawling because I guess like <clears throat> that is sort of inherently more positive it's like oh god this just keeps unfolding and it's great whereas like yeah. bloated there's something in it that, like we're sort of assuming that that's like oh god just you know take it out back and <laughs> deal with it already um but in terms of sprawling and you talking about Yakuza there I mean I know I I feel like I mentioned this a lot but it's Final Fantasy for me mm, and sure Final Fantasy 10 in particular because I think that was such a huge leap to the PS2 and having like voice actors and motion and a, a totally different sense of gameplay. Like you look at the difference between Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy X and it's vast, right? Mm, um, yeah. And there is that more kind of like sevenness to it. Um, but I think it had just sort of established like simultaneously it's having established such a strong tone throughout the game because <clears throat> you know like the never-ending story it's not that final like it keeps going um yeah and even but it's a different story and it's a different world and it's so rich but you kind of know what to expect at the same time which i think is a really impressive combination and kind of balance to strike and then, yeah. And then with Final Fantasy X, it was like, cool. Well, we have the technology. <laughs> we will rebuild him. And it was, but they didn't leave the story behind. And I think the story of Final Fantasy X is like heartbreaking. Even even here, mm. like <laughs> twenty years after I first played it, um, it still brings a tear to my eye. And the very nature of the gameplay as well, in that there's this sort of linear progression and then cool you get an airship and you can go back to wherever you want to and then you can kind of pick up a story so that like sprawling experience as well um and of course that is the kind of nature of a sandbox game like Yakuza mm -hmm. like Final Fantasy I think Final Fantasy also Final Fantasy 10 anyway in, at the very least strikes a good balance between giving you enough structure in the story but enough uh sort of wiggle room to go and do what you want for a bit as well so you really appreciate the detail that's been put into the world building mm. so that's generally yeah. sort of, you know what what happens with games but um i think the kind of sprawling art that i love the most i think has to be um the paul oster literary universe sure yeah um which i think he sort of ended up really acknowledging with travels in the scriptorium which is quite a slight novel and I would say is a lovely touch for real Osterheads like myself, but not necessary to enjoy the oeuvre of his work. But even with yeah. the, but even with the New York trilogy, there's been this kind of hovering awareness and like metafiction done well, <laughs> which is also mm. really quite hard to do. But the way that 
people sort of appear or are mentioned and that he has just created a very specific world and that going into each one of his books there is a sense of well not to be too New York is like a character in the film but how much of this is all just different kind of perspectives on a city that he is so entangled with um but it does have this feeling of like anything is possible and that's hard for it not to be sort of sprawling because you do feel like characters at any point could come back and and kind of um bounce off of each other in a new way and just a big chemistry set so yeah I think that's the first thing that really springs to my mind that's that doesn't have to be sprawling but is and I appreciate it all the more for that yeah also to kind of like go back to to what you were saying earlier about you know kind of like bloated versus sprawling um and and defining those ends I do think there is a a pejorative element to it in that bloated just by its very nature you know it comes of like a you know a corpse that's been in a rhythm for a few days or something um so obviously there's a negative uh or more nicely you know just having eaten too much at, at dinner. dinner um but even even so like the sense of you know kind of like bursting at the seams and i think for me the difference is um war and peace is sprawling great expectations is bloated <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's that sense of like um you know a story that kind of has like tons of characters and goes off in all different directions and encompasses a lot of themes versus a work that is is fairly straightforward and linear but um in the case of dickens you know it's serialized you'd be getting paid by the word so like (laughs) there's just a lot of extraneous material that you could you could probably uh cut out of there and end up with functionally the same the same work um but I, I still think there is a place for, like, like, like a lot of Stephen King's novels are, I would say, are bloated. Like, mm. um, one of his recent... The last, like, really, really good one of his that I read would be um, 11 his kind of, like, alternate history um, JFK book, which is really good, really emotionally invest, uh, really... Uh, emotionally engaging um has a a very good ending which is rare for a king book um and you know has a lot going for it it also has like there's a bit where the main character ends up in Derry, the town from it for (laughs) no real reason just kind of sees two of the kids from it at a point where they're not being menaced by a clown um and uh, there's like a little bit of an excursion there. And I think I didn't watch all of the Hulu adaptation, but I assume they cut that out because um, just the rights alone would probably be a, a nightmare to try and work out. Um, but like that is like an example of a book that I, I think is, is still really good. Like all of the bones to it are really, really solid and the story's good and um, it has a lot of really great ideas in it. But there is just like you just look at it and say, yeah, there's it is distended in some ways and that you could definitely kind of like uh excise some of it and it would still be you know a functional work whereas i think with sprawling stuff and again this is also kind of in the eye of the beholder because like this one person's kind of like engrossing broad sprawling epic is another person's just kind of like overblown waste of time um i think with with sprawling stuff there's that sense of like again like you know talking about yakuza fun fancy a lot of jrpgs actually um it's that sense of like yeah, sure, there's lots of extra stuff that isn't really essential to the story, but you just enjoy kind of like spending time with all the characters and, and uh, spending time in that world. Mm. And so you kind of like are drawn into that sort of stuff. For sure. And I think there's a real distinction in the intention of the work and the decisions made. Mm. Because I do think my bugbear with Stephen King's work is this sort of productivity fetish that he has. Yes, yeah. I don't think there's an awful lot of quality control. So it's like, wow, he's so mm. prolific. And it's like, yeah, but what actually is this? And I think it's that idea of just like churning out stuff that hasn't been in any way kind of edited or pared back. It's just this kind of, it's just rushed off. And I just imagine this kind of printer jam, you know, whereas something mm. that's sprawling has been very mindfully crafted. Um, thinking yeah. about The Lord of the Rings adaptations mm. for example versus the hobbit 
So yeah, great example. Great yeah, example. Great, just just to pluck a completely random example, and it's not just because of the source material. You know, I I think it's just the first three were adapted so well because there was a pace to it that didn't feel breakneck, and mm. there were moments of you know. And everyone was like, oh, what about Tom Bombadil? And it's like, yeah, but what are you going to... Come on. <laughs> what does that bring to the film, really? And mm. Robbie Coltrane was already playing Hagrid, so like, like, you're going to get him. No, if you're not getting, you're not getting Robbie, just, just leave it. Wise decision. But again, decisions. And stuff that was really thought through and like had to be justified and made for better films and a better trilogy... And as we've sort of touched upon before, when we've discussed like duration of films, none of those films feel long. Mm. You know, um, yeah, they feel lean and dense and rich. Whereas The Hobbit, uh, I think weirdly they were like people don't want one Hobbit film; they're used to mm. us having trilogies or whatever now. And it's like, no, just make the the. And again, it's just. It's the difference between killer and filler, isn't it, Ed? Because I think bloated mm. is essentially inflating something so that it's bursting, but with nothing of actual value. Yes, and I had an experience with One Such Works just yesterday oh. when I decided to listen a month and a half after anyone had even had stopped talking about it. Oh. To, <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> to, to Kanye West's Donda, his... Uh, I don't know. It's not really about his mum. His mum features on some of the tracks, like some audio recordings of her, and some of the tracks are kind of about his his grief over her death. But like, it's mainly just kind of it. It's kind of mainly him just kind of like checking in and telling everyone what he's been up to. <laughs> and there is just something really. I mean, it's like an hour and forty eight minutes long. I believe, because you can do that when you just release albums digitally nowadays, you can make them as long as possible. And there's just this real sense of creative exhaustion to it that is exacerbated by its sheer length because the production's really minimalist. There's the the rap his rapping is, is pretty bad. Like he's never been a great rapper. No. But he's he just like seems really like out of ideas on this the collaborations aren't like particularly inspired and there's something like like i have nothing against like minimalist hip-hop or, or anything like that you know like i love those early like wu-tang clan um records and they're all incredibly like minimal in sort of production they're all kind of full of a sense of kind of like starkness and dread and it works because you have like nine of the greatest rappers who ever lived <laughs> trading trading verses on it so it doesn't matter that you know the the production's not doing a lot but when you have like kanye who's never been a great lyricist or rapper uh and then you know various collaborators coming in and, and shooting it up a little bit um it just is this really like tedious experience and it's something that you think you know if this was 40 minutes long if we had like really narrowed this down or if it was more focused on him grieving you know his mother um then you know it would feel like a keener work but at the same time like he already made 808s and heartbreaks which is a fantastic album about him like grieving his mother uh indirectly uh you know kind of like more sonically and this is just like a super fucking long album where you just kind of he doesn't really have much to say it, it kind of has the the, the Chappelle problem where mm-hmm. it's just like I have I have sympathy for, for Kanye as someone who has clear mental health problems and who I think has been um very adversely affected by being one of the most famous people in the world for over sixteen years. Oh, that's um, wild. Yeah, I think that'll that'll fuck up anyone, but particularly someone like him who and you know, certainly on his early records like had a real vulnerability to him, contrasting with his kind of obvious kind of like um narcissistic qualities and then you know his mother dying at the height of his fame um in 2007 like really i really think i did a real number on him and i don't think he's ever really fully dealt with that so i have tremendous sympathy for him on that but there's just like 
lyrically and in terms of the things he chooses to rap about, he just like I just I just cannot engage with it. Like there's a certain point where someone if if they're super rich and super successful and they're in the public eye and that's all they sing about, then like it's very hard to relate to that sort of stuff. And like when he's talking singing about like Instagram and things like that, it's just kinda of like this is not fruitful material for you to explore at the length that you are choosing to explore it. Yeah. Um but yeah that that again that's that's an album where there are like good ideas in there but there's not really enough standout songs to make where you would look at and think you know what you couldn't cut a second of this mm. you yeah. know it's not like i mean I, and also i in general struggle with any album that goes over like 50 minutes i kind of it's the same yeah. idea I, I tend to have with like movies that go longer than 90 minutes like every minute after that you're you kind of have to really justify the length that you're you're uh keeping me uh engaged with it yeah um but like albums, I think you know it, it takes a real special album to justify like running more than uh, you know a medium length car journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things as well to kind of distinguish into talking about sprawling arc is that sprawling art is. I think there is also a distinction to be drawn between sprawling and epic. Yes, because. If you look at sort of the, the classic epics um, of, of Hollywood, or even just like more recent epics, like if you look at a, a Lawrence of Arabia or a Malcolm X, like big, long movies about kind of great, impactful people, they are epic because they are covering like these people who lived larger than life lives and who had this huge global impact. But I wouldn't necessarily say that they're sprawling because they have such a like a keen focus. Mm-hmm. They are about these men as they go through their lives and you know they interact with other people but the the focus is so like keenly felt on them that it they're really just like character dramas that just happen to take place over a long period of time or on a kind of like a big expansive canvas um whereas something like apocalypse now feels more sprawling because that's like a movie that you know takes place over a short period of time but is really kind of going off in all sorts of different directions. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I would, because sometimes sprawling is used as an adjective for epic, right? And it's like, mm. oh, just cut your word count. <laughs> um, but I agree with you. I think something can be sprawling without having the sense of scale that an epic has. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I respond to and what I've kind of mentioned already as sprawling is actually something that's built up over many different pieces of art and kind of seen as like an mm. oeuvre of someone's work. So each part can actually be quite just on a smaller scale, more intricate, rather than kind of like something that's spectacular just to just due to the sheer sort of size of it in some way, shape or form. Um, mm. or the content as well because I certainly as much as I love Paul Oster it sounds like I'm saying something bad about him when I say it's not epic but he's not an epic writer he is a sprawling yeah. writer and he he um, kind of hones in on overlooked parts of history for example um, one of his most recent um, books 4321 um, mm. is you know covers four different timelines of ostensibly the same person and has a kind of prologue which is all about this person's heritage and family and then as soon as they're born it then kind of sprawls into four different timelines and but it's not an epic because it's the minutiae of everyday life Mm. um but it's an absolutely stunning book and i recommend it heartily to anyone so yeah i think something can be sprawling and small which is what i really appreciate and again i, I realize how many of my favorite things are sprawling ed house of mm. leaves house of leaves one of my yeah. favorite books ever and terrifying oh god like if you haven't read it yet and you want something for a spooky season it's genuinely unsettling in the best possible way i think mm. it's such an incredible piece of work and that is sprawling because again i think it's encouraging you to not judge a book 
by its cover um, mm-hmm. or even treat a book like a book. And that is all I will say on the matter. Um, and that's partly why I love it so much. But kind of ergodic literature in particular, this kind of which the internet provides such an incredible platform for us to do, which is this kind of non-linear uh, branch or rhythmatic kind of narrative and storytelling is super exciting. And yeah, it, yeah, I, I, but I do think the key difference is knowing when to stop almost, because mm. I think a lot of people attempt sprawling and end up bloated because they can't kill their darlings. Yeah. Uh, that is definitely the case because one of the things I have in my my notes here was Game of Thrones, uh, uh, yeah. specifically the TV series. But I think it's more apt for the books because the first three books in that series I think strike the right balance. You know, obviously they've got all these characters and all these different geolog- ge- geographic locations and all these different plots that are unfurling, and they kind of reach their the, is the, the the series essentially reaches its climax with the Red Wedding, which is unfortunate for a series that's meant to be seven books long, um, that it kind of reaches that point. And it's like, oh, right, that's kind of not something we can ever recover from. Um, and then the four, what was meant to be the fourth book ended being split in, across two, and he, uh, George R. R. Martin did this whole thing where he split it um, geographically, so like the first book has like one collection of characters, and the second book has a different collection of characters, and they came up, uh, and both end up feeling way more bloated than sprawling as a result because it just feels like you're just kind of being, you're kind of regurgitating through these like 12 characters or whatever each time instead of, and you don't really feel as if you're making momentum, uh, there's any momentum moving because the events of that book then are also happening at more or less the same time as the book in the, the, the events of the fifth book. Mm. So then you read the fifth book and you get to the end of the fifth book and it's like, kind of don't feel like the story has gone anywhere here. And like, it's been fine hanging out with all the characters or whatever, but it just kind of feels as if this whole thing has just been kind of stuck in the mud for, you know, 2,000 pages. And that 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 is kind of he's not published another book since then and who knows if he ever will um but it definitely feels as if so well he's not published another like mainline book he's published other stuff but like that that definitely feels like the point at which the series became un uh unfinishable maybe just it'd be it'd because it had made that shift like you're saying from sprawl to bloat and i'm not sure if there is really a way uh, for him to recover from that. Yeah. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Little Joe, the film mm. from Jessica Hausner, who previously, uh, her previous work, uh, Lords, I thought was um, excellent. Right. I, I love this film, hence why I'm recommending it. I understand that people might not, but hey, we follow Emily Beecham, who plays a senior plant breeder in this 70s-inspired urban city that never gets identified. We're in this strange sort of space, right? Um, It was actually shot between Vienna and Liverpool. Lots of lovely houses are are seen. And she is working on this particular plant that gives an oxytocin rush to its caretaker when it is taken care of. Um, She makes the plant sterile, as is the kind of protocol for any sort of genetic engineering. Um, But spooky things start to happen. Um, It also has Ben Whishaw, Kerry Fox, David Wilmot, just an incredible cast. It is so stunningly shot and is so sinister. And I th- think Emily Beecham entirely deserved the Best Actress Award at Cannes because I haven't seen a performance with this level of restraint for a really long time. And I think that elevates everything that's happening. It's... I think a l- I think it's so evocative and strange that it's not 
trying to say anything too clearly. It's more to give you that like sense of dread. And I and the kind of stiltedness of the speech is part of it. Like I just think it's such a weird, wonderful film. It's it's quite luxe and high camp. So I think that's why it might not be to everyone's taste. But, you know, I love me some sort of 70, heavily 70s inspired thriller type things. All I will say is that I am astonished that this film was made just before the pandemic. And I will leave you all to watch it <laughs> and get back to me with why, because I do not want to say too much. Um, but that is Little Joe from Jessica Hausner. Cool. I am going to recommend a horror movie because it is the season and I've been watching uh, a fair few of them over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to recommend House of Wax from 2005, directed by Jaume Colletzera. I assume that's how you pronounce his name, um, who has since gone on to have kind of like a fairly successful uh, Hollywood career, but this is one of his first movies. And uh, this was a movie that I remember not seeing at the time because generally the response seemed to be fairly middling but uh it's always been one i've wanted to go back to because a friend of the show uh zoe jays i remember being a real uh, advocate for it at the time and and talking about how it was like really interesting and really cool and so i always thought yeah zoe's got great tastes so obviously i should watch that at some point and so i finally did because it was on hbo max and i really enjoyed it uh it's in some cases, fairly standard fare. A bunch of teens go drive to a football game. Their car breaks down. They wander into this town. Oh, my God, everyone's wax. Um, <laughs> you know, your usual stuff. Yeah. And uh, it kind of it goes on from there. The killers who live in this town who have, you know, when people wander in or people who live there, they have encased in wax. And you've got this kind of, like, it's got this really interesting mix, I think, between the kind of extreme horror that was coming into vogue at that time. You know, it's a year after Saw... Um, it's the same year that Hostel comes out and you know there are there's like some real kind of gruesome stuff in it with you know people having been encased in wax having bits of that wax removed and what that does to the underlying skin um, and it, it, that stuff is very gross and uh, in a very very entertaining way um, but also it kind of has this gothic quality to it because the very nature of the story is kind of over the top and you end up in like scenes where people are being chased through a house that is made of wax and when a fire starts you know parts of the house are falling away around them so it's kind of got this really like I say gothic and kind of over the top quality to it uh, which maybe didn't chime well with audiences and, and meant that it didn't really do as well at the time when it came out and also um, you know it is it's mainly well known for being uh, one of the few starring roles for Paris Hilton, who at the time was you know, very infamous. It was immediately after her her sex tape was leaked, and there was there's 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 even kind of what seems like a nod to it, where like the first couple of scenes of the movie are her being sort of filmed without her knowledge, um, which seems to be nodding to that sort of stuff. And there were anecdotal stories I heard of people really cheering when her character dies because her ch- character has uh, one of the more gruesome deaths in the movie. Um, so there may have just been this real kind of like misogynistic hatred towards her that impacted the movie as well. So you can't, can't really discuss the movie without discussing that. But I think now, watching it now, it is super fun. It's got lots of really great people in it. You know, um, Paris Hilton, I think, is, is pretty good in it. Like, she's not in it a huge amount, but I think she's she does well with what she's given. Elijah Cuthbert is very good in the lead. Uh Jared Padalecki, who is one of the two guys from um, Supernatural and all 700 seasons of that show. Um, um, and it also has a very small role for Damon Herriman, who uh, is now most famous, I think, probably for uh, just being cast as Charles Manson in things, um, having played him in both Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and uh, Mindhunter Season 2. And it's really funny seeing him in this because he looks exactly the same. <laughs> he he has not changed in 16 years and it got me wondering if he is like the Paul Rudd of people who will only ever be cast as like hillbillies and murderers because <laughs> that he just has that same age-defying ability. Um, but yeah, it's it's great. It's, it's super fun and scary and gross in all the best ways and well worth checking out. Uh, it's, it's kind of a... a, a 
simultaneously very famous and well-known, but also, I think, quite underrated little movie. So that's House of Wax uh, from 2005. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Playground, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you.